Let's pray and ask for God's help uh, as we come to spend time in it. Father, we thank you so much that you're the God who speaks, the God that we can know as you speak to us, the God who has poured out his spirit. So, Father, please help me now in my weakness to be clear and helpful and faithful. And please, in your great kindness, pour out your spirit that we would see and savour the Lord Jesus in all his glory and that we would be so moved to trust and to live for him. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, When I first started running the youth group here at Bundy back in 2012, uh, I thought it would be good to buy a book on youth ministry as I should learn as much as I can. Uh, And so I bought one and in the opening chapters it described the different models or approaches to youth group. And as I read the book, I came to exactly what we were doing here at Bundy. The classic youth group in a community hall, plenty of food, 90 minutes of games and high energy and activity, and then a short devotion to finish. Uh, And as I read the book, I was pretty chuffed. I thought, that's exactly what we do. We are doing youth ministry by the book. Now sit back and wait for revival. But my glee was pretty short-lived as the author went on to say that the problem with this kind of youth ministry is that it's kind of like spiking a drink. It's a bait-and-switch approach, you know, win them over with fun, stuff them full of food so they have to sit down and listen to the Bible part. Uh, It's deceptive, but also, worst of all, it actually says you have no confidence in the gospel, the good news about Jesus, as if Jesus needs you to soften the blow before introducing him. And I think this is a tension that lots of Christians have felt when it comes to talking about Jesus. We need to be really friendly. We need to build a good connection first so they know we aren't that weird when it then comes to the crazy part of talking about Jesus and his death and resurrection. And it seems that this is exactly the tension that the Corinthians are feeling as they saw how foolish the message of the cross was to their world. And that's what Paul unpacked last week in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18 through to 2, 5. The cross, it's foolishness to the world, but God is pleased to use this foolish message to call people who aren't wise or impressive like the Corinthians and even pleased to use an unimpressive speaker like Paul. And so as the Corinthians feel the tension, they start to wonder, what if we just improve the message a little bit? What if we made it more compelling or a bit less offensive and only use people who are more engaging? Surely that will win more people and make us a little bit less crazy. And so our passage tonight in verse 6 following, it actually comes as an important corrective. As Paul says, while the message of the cross, the good news about Jesus, is foolishness to the world, he says, don't actually think it's foolish. We don't need to soften it. We don't need to change it or hide it or even improve it, but see it for what it is. It's wisdom from God. I think that's why Paul begins with a subtle rebuke in verse 6. This is where Bibles open, verse 6. Paul says, We do, however, speak a wisdom among the mature, but not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Maturity sees the message of the cross as wisdom, regardless of what the world can see. 
And I think this is a subtle rebuke because no doubt the Corinthians saw themselves as mature. They were spiritual, they were gifted, they gathered around impressive speakers that everyone wanted to listen to. But Paul says maturity is not about improving the cross and certainly not about moving beyond it, but clinging to it as God's wisdom. And the goal here is not to create a hierarchy as if the mature are a special class of Christian or more Christian. Maturity is what all believers can be, what all Christians should strive to be. We see this in Colossians 1, where Paul explains his ministry like this. He says, we proclaim him, that is Christ, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Maturity is about seeing the gospel rightly as God's wisdom and then having it shape all of your life. It's what he's going to call in verse 16, having the mind of Christ, where everything is for Jesus, like Jesus. The whole world is processed through the cross. Because while the world sees it as foolish, the message of the cross is actually true wisdom. We see this as Paul contrasts the wisdom of God with the wisdom of the world. See, verse 6 again, not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Human wisdom, he says, it can only take you so far. It's got an expiration date. And again, Paul, as Chris said last week, he's not against human wisdom. He's not anti-intellectual. Christianity is not turn off your brain and just accept everything. It's human wisdom, it can split the atom, it can put men on the moon, it can create artificial intelligence, but it cannot tell you about God. Of such things, humans by nature are ignorant. No genius, no computer, no telescope can give it to you. Human wisdom cannot tell us about God, what he's like or how we can know him. In fact, quite the opposite. Human wisdom, it gets it so wrong that when the God of the universe who made us, the God of love and beauty and majesty, when he condescended, he stepped into our world in human flesh to offer life to the full, hope, relationship with himself, human wisdom killed him. Verse 8, none of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom, that's God's wisdom, because if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You see, human wisdom, it's self-seeking. It's pretentious. It rejects God, replaces God, even invents gods. It's all about us, human achievement. But God's wisdom, his true wisdom, is different. Verse 7, on the contrary, we speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery, a wisdom God predestined before the ages for our glory. He says God's wisdom, it's, it's hidden. Yes, it was promised throughout all the Old Testament, but it's truly revealed in the coming of Christ. That's what mystery in verse 7 actually means. It's not that God's wisdom is mysterious, but that it needed to be revealed, like a secret waiting to be shared. That's what the coming of Jesus was. And this plan, this wisdom of God, was God's idea before creation itself. Before the world existed, God had resolved to send his son into the world to die, to bring sinners to himself, 
God's wisdom is what our world was made for. God's wisdom is when we flourish under his rule. And it really is true wisdom. Did you hear the contrast in verses 6 to 9? Human wisdom kills the Lord of glory, but God's wisdom gives glory. His hidden wisdom, verse 7, is for our glory. Isn't that profound? God's wisdom, it's, it's good news. It's, it's so much better than what we would guess or imagine. That's why Paul quotes Isaiah 64 in verse 9. He says, What no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human heart has conceived, God has prepared these things for those who love him. In Isaiah 64, what Baal read for us, God's people, they're crying out for mercy. Mercy from God because they've sinned, they've rejected him, they've become unclean, they have nothing good to offer God, they're facing judgment, they long for deliverance, yet they know that God's ways are not like theirs. And as people that have seen God's wisdom revealed in the coming of Jesus in the cross, we've actually seen God's answer to Isaiah 64. He's shown us mercy. He's cleansed us from all unrighteousness. He's given us hope and eternal life, all by taking the punishment we deserve on his perfect son. And that now through his death in our place, the risen Jesus unites us to himself. We're seated in heaven. We have the hope of glory at his coming when he will make all things new, when he will wipe away all our tears and there's no war, no pandemic, no sickness, no death. You see, God's wisdom, it's such good news. What no human heart has conceived, God has prepared for those who love him. And so I hope you can see how foolish, how horrible the thought of thinking we can take human wisdom and improve the gospel. How unnecessary it is to hide it or to think we need to change it The message of the cross shows us the heart and character of our God who reconciles a world that rejects him to himself through his son. And God has been pleased to reveal his wisdom through his spirit. Verse 10. Now God has revealed these things to us by the spirit since the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. In verses 10 to 16, Paul outlines that God's hidden wisdom has been revealed, not only in the coming of Christ, but now to all who believe by the Spirit. The Spirit, his reality, his work, it's the focus of all these verses because the work of the Spirit is inseparable from the work of God revealed in Christ. There's a sense in which someone cannot truly reveal themselves to someone else unless they truly know themselves. And because the Spirit searches even the depths of God, the Spirit is uniquely able to reveal God to us. To know God, we are utterly dependent on God to reveal himself to us. That's why Paul illustrates the point with a human example in verse 11. He says, who knows a person's thoughts except his spirit within him? Uh, If I was to ask you what the person sitting next to you is thinking about right now, 
what would you say? I can't believe Chris cancelled the afternoon tea. Those chalk chip cookies, he doesn't deserve them anyway. Maybe they're thinking, this is a captivating sermon. That guy makes 40 minutes feel like four. Maybe you're distracted and you're thinking, that kebab for dinner, it sounds so good right now. Or for those of you that have already indulged, that kebab for lunch, it's not sitting so well right now. You'll have to ask the person sitting next to you if you're right, but the point is you're guessing. You cannot know. You might even get it right, but you still would only know if that person told you. And so to know God, to know his hidden wisdom, it must be revealed to us. Hence why after the illustration in verse 11, he says, in the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, the Spirit is not like part of God, like his conscience, like He our Spirit in verse 11. The Holy Spirit is God. He's the third person of the Trinity. He is similar to God. He is the same as God's substance, yet he is distinct from the Father and the Son. And he is sent out to reveal God. And so to know God, he must reveal himself to us. And he is chosen to by his Spirit. Now, I think this is quite difficult for us to grasp because our world is driven by the search, the determination for knowledge. We value, we take pride in, we even judge others based on knowledge and, yes, even on education. Uh, Perhaps you've heard it, maybe you've even thought it to yourself. I would have gone to RMIT, but I got into Melbourne. Oh, you're an art student. That's nice. I would have taken a gap year too, but after my 99 ATAR, how could I let the university down? You see, we have this thirst for knowledge to explore from the atom to outer space, and the conclusion is that if there is a God, it's on us to discover him or hit and decide. And so you see, it's actually human wisdom, human arrogance on full display when we think we can decide what God should be like, what God should or shouldn't value or do. Uh, I recently RSVP'd for a wedding, which of course included the request for any dietary requirements. But imagine if the couple got a little bit creative and sat down and said, let's just guess instead. And they looked at the names on the invite and they said, you know what, to me, Andrew, he looks like a vegan. It would be absurd, right, not to mention very wrong. (laughs) But how much more absurd to think we can decide what God is like, to think we can decide what God should be like without him revealing it to us. It is just utter human arrogance. And this actually then creeps into Christianity, I think, when you hear the classic, oh, I don't like to think of God as, insert any number of things, I don't think, like to think of God as judging anyone, as letting bad things happen, of suppressing my happiness. And so we are fully dependent on God to reveal himself. But the wonder is he's taken the initiative to do it by his spirit. God actually desires that we, we know him and not live in the fruitless speculation that leaves us with the disappointing God that we invented and therefore without hope. 
But there is actually an order or a progress of thought about how God reveals himself to us by the Spirit, as the arrows in the handout suggest. And the flow really depends on how we understand the use of we and us in these verses. And so while it's true that every believer receives the Spirit of God and knows God, as we'll see in verses 15 to 16, the apostles, like Paul, had actually a unique role and privilege in explaining the gospel, the meaning and purpose of Christ's death and resurrection. The Spirit worked in them and then through them and now through them to all believers. That's what we see in verse 12, as the apostles are given understanding of what God has done, then teach wisdom, or the wisdom of God in verse 13, by the Spirit, which is then either rejected or understood by the individual in verses 14 to 16, as the Spirit works through the apostolic preaching. So let's begin in verse 12. Now we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who comes from God, so that we may understand what has been freely given to us, by God. The spirit of the word world in verse 12, it's another way of speaking about human wisdom that's in opposition to God. The apostles did not come to their understanding and their teaching about Jesus as death and resurrection through some human intellect, but through the spirit that God gave them to give them understanding. The gospel of grace, what Paul says, God has freely given us through Jesus, the understanding was entrusted to the apostles. Paul says very similar in Ephesians 3. He says, By reading this, you are able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This was not made known to people in other generations, as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And then having received understanding by the Spirit, the Spirit continues to work through the apostles as they spoke and wrote and taught. Verse 13, we also speak these things, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. The apostles taught the gospel as they travelled from town to town, as we read about in Acts, but then also in what they wrote down, their letters like 1 Corinthians that we're reading now. But notice that Paul is confident that his words are not just merely his own, but Words taught by the Spirit. This is what we call the dual authorship of the Bible. Because the Bible is actually unashamedly a human book written by people at history in different times and in different situations. But the Bible is also God's Word, breathed out by God as he works through these human authors by the Holy Spirit. It's what we mean when we say the Bible is inspired by God. They are his very words through human authors. And this is actually something Jesus said would happen. Uh, In John's Gospel, in chapters 14 to 16, we're in the upper room. It's the night before Jesus' crucifixion. He's with the disciples and preparing them for his imminent death. And he promises them the coming of the Spirit to guide them and work through them. Jesus says, John 15, verse 26, When the counsellor comes, the one I will send to you, that is, you, the apostles, from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. You also will testify, because you have been with me from the beginning. 
The Spirit testifies to the apostles. The apostles then testify as those entrusted with the understanding of what God has done in and through Jesus as those who were uniquely with him from the beginning. Now, this all might seem a little bit trivial to you, but it's actually really important because it protects us from thinking that knowing God is this personal and private venture that we can go about however we like and come to whatever conclusion we like as if God can just be different for certain people. Because we live in a time where the word truth is almost always preceded by the word my. My truth is what I decide I'm comfortable with. It's my take on things. What I've decided should be the case. But knowing God can never be like that. If anything, it's why our world and culture is so uncomfortable with the Bible. And so while God revealing himself, his wisdom to us is good news, it's beyond our comprehension, it does not and it will not just affirm our existing feelings or leave us unchallenged or unchanged. 1 Corinthians is actually going to show us this time and time again. J.I. Packer, he's written a great book called Knowing God, and in it he says this, God's wisdom is not and never was pledged to keep a fallen world happy or to make ungodliness comfortable. Not even to Christians has God promised a trouble-free life, rather the reverse. He has other ends in view for life in this world than simply to make life easy for everyone. And so a view of God that never challenges you, never changes you, and just merely affirms what you think or do, well, it's just a God of our own imagination and invention. To truly know God, to be his people, we must be committed to what God has revealed through the apostles. And in an age of podcasts and YouTube and churches and preachers that you can just choose from any time, we should make sure every sermon requires Bibles open. It's why we are committed to working through books of the Bible, not just picking and choosing the parts that are nice or that we particularly like. And it's what you should be committed to. Knowing God, listening to God through the apostolic witness that God has written down and preserved for us. The Spirit was at work through the apostles as they taught and then continues to work as he gives us understanding as we read it. We see that at the end of verse 13. He says the apostles, they explain spiritual things to spiritual people understanding God's word knowing God it's the work of the spirit from start to finish the spirit has to enable us individually to grasp what is written down so that we can know God ourselves Paul makes this super clear in the contrast of verses 14 to 16 where he compares someone with the spirit to someone without verse 14 The person without the Spirit does not receive what comes from God's Spirit because it is foolishness to him. He is not able to understand it since it is evaluated spiritually. Without God's Spirit, God's Word is foolishness. Now, it's not to say that an unbeliever or a non-Christian won't get or understand anything in the Bible. 
They will. Most Australians can probably summarise for you the story about why Jesus died as we come to Easter, for example. But without the Spirit, understanding the gospel that leads us to actually know and trust God is impossible. No Spirit, no understanding. No Spirit, no conversion. And I think this is quite helpful for us because it explains what most of us have as a common experience. We cannot persuade somebody to love what we love. Now, this has been my experience, sadly, with Transformers, even with my own kids. But you can't persuade someone to see God the way that you do either. The Spirit must work to reveal God. And so the only reason any Christian knows trusts, enjoys God, is because God has taken the initiative to open eyes, to soften hearts and enable us to savour Christ through the gospel. And so it should go without saying that there is absolutely no room for pride or arrogance when it comes to our knowledge of God. What do we have? What do we know that wasn't given to us? Now, this, of course, does not mean that we shouldn't work at our understanding of God or be committed to reading the Bible. Quite the opposite. In fact, the presence and work of the Spirit humbles us, yes, but actually drives us into God's Word to be captured more and more by it. We see it in verse 15. He says, The spiritual person, however can evaluate everything, yet he himself cannot be evaluated by anyone. Now, by evaluate everything, Paul is not saying that all Christians will be able to comprehend all of reality. It's that the Spirit works in us to give us understanding and knowledge of God so that we can then assess reality and our experiences and our whole world through that understanding. The Spirit works in us to have a a biblical worldview, to process life through the lens of the gospel. We actually get to evaluate, to process everything through God's word, which really is an amazing privilege and comfort. Whether it's a pandemic or a war, loneliness or marriage, promotion or unemployment, we can understand it not just with worldly wisdom but with God's wisdom. We get to process the ups and downs of life through God's word, which gives us true perspective, gives us hope and comfort. And this is especially the case when life is costly or hard or lonely because of our trust in Jesus. That's what Paul means in verse 15 when he says, the believer is not evaluated by anyone. Or what the NIV helpfully fleshes out, is not subject to merely human judgments. See, because having God's spirit will bring about a total change. Change of allegiance, change of values, change of worldview and behaviour. The life of a Christian will often be a total mystery to the unbelieving world. Our lives will often seem irrational, maybe foolish, even offensive. But their assessment of us does not change our reality. The Corinthians were feeling this tension. It's awkward to be different from our culture, a tension that many of us have had or will have. But we can actually expect their confusion, even at times their hostility, 
which is affirming that God is at work in us by his spirit. That's why I think Paul finishes on this great quote from Isaiah 40 in verse 16. He says, Who has known the Lord's mind that he may instruct him? Now, the expected answer is no, right? Who has known? No one's known. In fact, the whole section of Isaiah 40 where this quote comes from is stressing the absolute gulf between God and us. God can measure the whole waters of the world in the hollow of his hand. God consulted no one, needed no one when he made the world. He's bigger, he's better than we can ever imagine. The world cannot know God's mind. And Paul knows the presumed answer is no one knows the Lord's mind. But then he says, verse 16, but we have the mind of Christ. In God's kindness, by God's spirit, we have actually come to know God, to receive his hidden wisdom. And so as we feel the tension of being different from our world, uh, even if it leaves us at odds in what we value or do, the answer is don't hide, don't change your Christianity, but go deeper into it. To have the mind of Christ is to know God and then see the whole world through what he has done in Christ, what we have in Christ. Paul finishes on the wonderful reality of having the mind of Christ to encourage us because it's going to sustain us through the tension and even give us confidence. Having the mind of Christ will liberate us from shrinking away in awkwardness or changing the gospel out of fear or rejection or the delusion of thinking I could make it better to win someone over. To have the mind of Christ is to be able to say, you have come to know God, to know his love and power and presence, that you've been caught up in his saving purposes for the world through Jesus, and all of it was a gift, a gift you've received by God's Spirit. This is a reality, a perspective that should change everything. That's what we're going to see over the next few chapters of 1 Corinthians. The mind of Christ is meant to change our whole identity. The mind of Christ will protect us from foolish divisions and destructive selfishness. It will guard us against idolatry and sexual immorality. Nothing is left unchanged by having the mind of Christ. Which I think for tonight leads us to do two important things. To pray and to seek. Prayer, it has to be our first and foremost response. Yes, to thank God, but also because we're just entirely dependent on God's spirit to know God. And so if you are not yet a believer, a follower in Jesus tonight, you should ask God to reveal himself by his spirit, to open your eyes, to change your heart, that you would enjoy him for who he truly is. We should pray. Pray that God would give us understanding and depth of insight as we come to his word. Uh, This is why we actually begin all of our sermons here with prayer. It's not a formality. It's not a tradition. It's because my ability to understand and teach the Bible, just like your ability to comprehend it at all, is entirely dependent on God. Uh, In his book, Reading the Bible Supernaturally, John Piper describes prayer as indispensable because prayer is not meant to make us passive but give us confidence. 
He says, this is how we're supposed to read the Bible. We will and work because God is willing and working in us. We work with all of our natural powers to see the meaning of the inspired writings because God is at work to open our minds to see the glory that is really there. God reveals himself by his spirit. We should pray and we should seek to come to longing to know and enjoy and imply God, apply God's word more. Now, you may know Psalm 119. It's the longest chapter in the Bible, that kind of major road bump as you're reading the Bible from start to finish. But it really is this long and beautiful meditation on the preciousness of God's word. And all throughout it, we see a prayer and we see seeking. Time and time again, the psalmist urges God to teach me, verse 12, 26, 33, 64, to help me, 27, 34, 35, and for transformation, to put God's word into practice with new and changed perspective. The psalmist says, turn my heart to your decrees and not to dishonest prophet. Turn my eyes from looking to what is worthless. Give me life in your ways. Our coming to God's word should be marked with humble dependence that says we can do nothing without God's spirit but also a resolved confidence that says God has given us his spirit. Humble yet resolved, dependent yet confident. Does that describe your approach to God's word? Whether by yourself or as you come to church or in your growth group midweek, do you pray for wisdom, wisdom and understanding for perspective and insight? because you long to process all of life through the lens of the gospel, whether singleness or marriage, success or failure, wealth or poverty, having kids or longing for them, your popularity or your rejection. Do you pray for and seek God's wisdom? Or do you just process it with worldly wisdom, driven by comparison of what others have but you don't? Or by rights, what you think you deserve? Or just by comfort, longing for the life that's easy? Or do you navigate all of life, the highs and the lows, with the mind of Christ? What can, what should motivate us more to pray and to seek than knowing that God has taken the initiative to reveal himself to us and will continue to work in us and even through us Pray and seek, not just for yourself, but also for others. Because if people can only know Jesus by the work of the Spirit, surely prayer is our starting point in evangelism. Praying for God to open blind eyes, to raise the spiritually dead, to give life as he grants faith and repentance. Pray for God to save people. It's why I find our monthly prayer meeting so important as a church, where we get together and pray for God to do the big picture work that only God can do, to pray for our friends and family and colleagues, and then to keep praying for them, but then also to seek, to seek opportunities to speak of Jesus and take them, to speak knowing that God does pour out his spirit. He does give life because he did it for you and he's done it for countless others. Do you remember two weeks ago as we started 1 Corinthians, Paul arrived in Corinth beaten and discouraged by opposition. And then God told him, 
Do not be afraid, but speak, for God has many people in this city, people he was going to save through the gospel. God continues to bring people to himself through the preaching of the gospel. Now, it may make us look uh, foolish, it may be costly, it may even go unappreciated, yet we process all of it with the mind of Christ. We know that our God works by his spirit through his word for our good and for our growth and even to seek and save the lost. So pray and seek God's wisdom and then speak it to all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your love and kindness you reveal your hidden wisdom to us. Wisdom that you planned before the creation of the world. Wisdom seen in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Wisdom that is for our glory. So please give us your wisdom now by your spirit. Cause us to have the mind of Christ as we go deeper into your word. Work in us to apply the message of the cross to all of our life. To be shaped by the gospel through triumph and failure through comfort and challenge, through joy and sorrow. And by your Spirit, give us courage to speak your wisdom, knowing that you're the God who seeks and saves the lost. We thank you that you have been so pleased to pour out your Spirit that we can know and enjoy you forever. So please do your good work in us and through us for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.